also feel free to uh, curse and swear. We uh, we have that explicit sticker on our on our show label. So whatever, however you want to express yourself, <laughs> <laughs> loudly and at length. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Joining Andrew and myself today is Colleen Moore, who is the cycling coach and podcaster for Empirical Cycling. He is a lifelong cyclist, a national championship medalist, and a former Taekwondo instructor as well. He holds a Bachelor in Science in Biology from Boston University, where he learned biochemistry, metabolism, and physiology. This background gives him a scientific and fundamental understanding uh, of the unique optimization required for each individual that is reflected in his training methods. Um, on my personal uh, experience with Kali, I've uh, been an avid listener of that Imperial Cycling podcast. I've also heard him on uh, Michael Erickson's Scientific Triathlon podcast, which was a, an excellent summary of, uh, of Kali's um, approaches to training. And uh, I have to say that, you know, in my, there's a few things that I, I consider myself reasonably knowledgeable on. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on, on anything. But, um, you know, there's certain things that I feel like I have a sound understanding of. And, uh, you know, elements of physiology in, uh, in endurance sport is, is one of those things. And then when I heard Kali talk about uh, specifically his opinion on VO2 max and, uh, and the research that he's done into it, it was one of those, uh, one of those you know, double take moments where, you know, I, I realized where on that Dunning-Kruger curve I actually was in, in my understanding of the uh, of the science and the the approaches here, and this was the moment where I realized I really needed to have him on our show so that he could, uh, you know, share this experience with us. So, um, with that preamble, Kali, thank you so much for agreeing to do the show and uh, and coming on to spend a bit of time with us. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. So uh, let's jump right in, uh, listeners. The topic, as you may have guessed, for today is going to be. VO2 max. And uh, if you really want an in-depth um, understanding of, uh, of this topic, I strongly recommend checking out, uh, I think it was Watt Docs 18 through 24, if I remember correctly, Kali. But uh, so- sounds about right. It's hard to remember <laughs> at this point. There's been quite a few. Yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was maybe five or six episodes on, on uh, the Empirical Cycling Podcast that really do a deep dive into, uh, into this element, this critical element of our physiology. Uh, but uh, I wanted Kali to kind of give us a little bit more of a high level since we don't have six episodes, we just have one. Uh, so let's start with the kind of the basics of what it is and uh, how it affects endurance performance. Yeah, so VO2max really sets the upper limit for uh, aerobic performance. And, um, you know, in any sport that lasts longer than about a minute to a minute and a half, that's going to be a very large driver. Of course, depending on your physiology, if you're a Mm -hmm. sprinter like me, uh, it's going to be less of a component um, and you're going to hurt more. But uh, for most (laughs) people, uh, it's the other way around. And so then it becomes a very, very large driver of uh, performance. Uh, And at some point, uh, most people do hit some sort of limit and, um, then you have to, uh, you know, kind of find other roads to increase performance, uh, which is, you know, part of what you all do with, uh, you know, with your 
uh, products and, uh, you know, aero testing eventually and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so, so we're all one big happy performance family. <laughs> yep, we all want to make it go faster. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the details of VO2 Max, um, what it is. And uh, I mean, you, you, you told us sort of how it limits, how it can limit performance. But uh, let's talk about some of the, the inputs into that equation. Like what determines VO2 Max? All right. So the easiest way to think about VO2 Max, um, you know, is uh, you know, typically measured in units as liters per minute. Or if you want to uh, make it relative to your body weight, liters per minute per kilogram body weight. So uh, one of the best ways to think about VO2 max is with the Fick equation, which is uh, VO2 max is equal to, uh, I don't have it in front of me, so it's uh, AVO2 difference, which is your peripheral adaptation and your um, your uh, Q, which is your cardiac output. So it's, um, so it's your heart rate times your stroke volume is going to make your cardiac output. Mm-hmm. And so there's these two, um, two parts of the equation that we can look at individually that together make VO2 max. And, um, and I think, you know, you had hinted at before about, um, you know, a lot of people focus on the peripheral part of things. And, uh, and I've, I focus very much on the central part of things, although, um, well, to me, it's it's. Not, I don't really focus on them, but to me, that's the bigger limiter of performance. And also, it can it can make a big difference which um, you know what cycling population you're working with, mm-hmm. um, because for instance, like super elite athletes, like if you look at like Brad Wiggins, you know his his VO two max has probably been, at, you know, as high as it's ever going to get since he was like 22, 23 years old. Okay. You know? and if you're looking at somebody like him. Um, question is like how, what's, what's his endurance training history. And so the way to make him improve, if he has the ability to improve at all, would be to like do something like increase the volume so you can have more capillary density and more, uh, more mitochondria in your muscles because his stroke volume is maxed out. His heart's not going to get any bigger and it's not going to pump any faster. So that's one of those things where if you're working with super elite people, that can be a thing. Or if you're working with an average person, they both can have a pretty large difference, but centrally, um, in the long term, that is actually going to make a larger difference in terms of uh, improvements. You're going to get much higher percentage of improvements if you think about central adaptation. But it's not like the two aren't intertwined because they really are mm-hmm. the central and peripheral. Right. That's a that's a great summary. And just a little bit of context for our listeners, just maybe defining some terms for folks. Uh, so what Kali's talking about, um, cardiac output's fairly straightforward, but the AVO2 difference, uh, what he means there is the oxygen concentration in the arterial versus the venous blood, right? So that's sort of, you know, your your peripheral or your the other way that I like to talk about it sometimes is your kind of your demand side, like what your working mm-hmm. muscles can actually use. And measuring how much they use is you know, captured in that AVO2 difference. So the, you know, the oxygen concentration of the arterial blood, which of course supplies the muscles and then the, the venous blood, which is, you know, returning the somewhat deoxygenated blood from the muscles back to the heart to be. Yeah. And it actually makes a difference where you measure it too, because if you Mm -hmm. measure it in the femoral artery versus the femoral vein, you're actually going to get a bigger, uh, a larger uh, AVO2 difference than if you measure it for instance, in your vena cava versus your uh, main aorta. Yeah. So, like, if you measure it going into the heart, it's actually mixed. Uh, like, if you're just doing cycling, you know, the blood that's going through your legs, you know, not all of it's going to go through, like, working tissue. And if you're not working maximally, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, it, but it gets mixed with blood that's going to, like, things that aren't working so hard, like your lats and, you know, presumably your abs or maybe, maybe your brain at some point. So, right. um, so, so that uh, – so when they mix, it actually – um, will actually uh, decrease because you know you're you're mixing 
used blood with unused blood, if you will. Sure, sure. From tissues that are working hard, some tissues working harder than others. Yeah. And if you measure, for instance, across a capillary bed, which is really, really technically difficult, um, what you're probably going to find is that the, you know, biggest, uh, the biggest difference that you're going to find is, you know, I don't know, like 98% or something like that, because you're going to go from like your typical uh, capillary O2 pressure, which is going to be, you know, somewhere around like 90 through 70%, depending on, because there's some diffusion as you go through. Then once you get through the capillary bed, if you're going through really maximally working muscle, you know, you're never going to get down to like zero because, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, a gas concentration. You're never going to get to zero without having a vacuum. Yeah. Diffusion doesn't work that input. way. Exactly. And so really you're only going to get down to like what, two to three tour or something like that. Maybe like one to two, if you really, really get down there. So, um, yeah, so you never really get to zero at any point. Okay. Got it. So for me, it's kind of interesting just hearing that analogy or hearing that comparison where you have the the mixed blood coming back to the lungs. And the immediate thought I have is, okay, if you've got a higher concentration of oxygen in the, the blood going back to the lungs, that's going to limit the amount of oxygen uptake you can actually get within the lungs themselves versus if you were to have that same concentration coming right out of the legs, which does explain why athletes like cross-country skiers would have high VO2 max measurements because they're they're using all of that oxygen availability. And you've got uh, the, the driving force for oxygen uptake there would be higher because there's a larger concentration difference. Yeah, because there's more space to put more oxygen mm-hmm. uh, that's in your lungs. And so, you know, you could, and the, you know, the um, the diffusion of oxygen from the lungs like, into the blood is actually very, very efficient. So, um, so if you use it, you know, unless you've got some issues like, uh, you know, you've had COVID or you've got uh, bronchitis or something like that, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, it's going to be right back up to like 98, 99% saturation. Very cool. So let's get back to the implications of VO2 max in endurance training. And we we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, folks, but uh, uh, Kali had a great example of how VO2 max limits performance. And let's talk about, you know, endurance performance. Uh, in our case, our listeners are typically, you know, cyclists, triathletes, runners, so, uh, and not, you know, track sprinters. So let's say we're participating in events that are 15 minutes and longer leading all the way up to, you know, ultra endurance stuff that can be days or at least a large part of a day in an Ironman race where it could be anywhere from, you know, eight hours to 16 hours. So for, mm-hmm. for that fairly broad swath of the endurance population, how, why is uh, VO2 max relevant and how does it impact performance? Well, I mean, it, um, it does set the upper limit for performance. And so, um, and you know, an FTP, you know, underneath, well, quote unquote, underneath VO2 max is um, is going to set a more sustained uh, performance limit. So mm-hmm. if your you know TTE at FTP is like 35 minutes, um, you know that's uh, and you have a 40 minute uh, event, you know, you're going to have to be at a little under FTP. And if your TTE is at 60 minutes, and you can be a little over FTP, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but for instance, if you're um, you know, if going a certain speed requires a certain amount of oxygen and that oxygen consumption is, let's say, three liters a minute. And if your VO2 max is three and a half, but you need to maintain three liters a minute for, let's say, an hour and a half or two hours, um, you're really not going to get there. So <laughs> so you have to raise, quote, unquote, raise the roof, raise the ceiling, which is your VO2 max. Like that's the upper limit of the aerobic performance. Yeah, I think that's a that's a wonderful explanation, right? So it depending on what your your what your discipline demands of you in terms of uh, oxygen consumption, and, and that's sometimes hard to quantify, right? It's more of if we're talking about cycling, it's like, well, how fast, how much power do you need to produce to go the speed that you want to go, 
And then how sustainable is that power production, uh, you know, over the duration that, that that speed means you have to keep that intensity at. Sorry, that's a very awkward way of putting it, but uh, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> listening. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you, you, you follow that. So then, um, yeah, so if it's if it's the roof and it's obviously very relevant, then, uh, you know, how do we how do we raise that proverbial roof? Um, that's a very good question. And, uh, I'm actually gonna, um, before, before we get into the nitty nitty gritty, I'm gonna, uh, make a caveat, which, uh, Dean Gollis once told me, um, you know, and, uh, of course, you know, thinking about it, it makes total sense. And it's like, of course, why wouldn't that be the case? Um, uh, but you know, sometimes you, you need to be told the obvious by, by somebody like him, um, in order to really get it in, get it through your head. So he, he said something like, um, you know, there's no one type of training, like in terms of looking for the subsequent adaptation that is going to really be the silver bullet in terms of performance. And this is me putting some words in his mouth, but the concept's the same. Um, he pretty much said that you need to work all of it. Um, so you need to do the endurance training. You need to do the FTP training. You need to do the VO2 max training. You need to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's really the caveat that I should say is that, you know, none of this is, uh, like on its own is going to make the biggest difference in your training, unless you're doing everything else, but one thing, in which case doing that one <laughs> thing is probably going to help a lot. Um, oh, fair enough. so, um, so my, my working concept of VO2 max training is, um, is volume supports, uh, peripheral, um, adaptations in terms of blood volume and c- blood capacitance, um, that, uh, together with the right types of training can increase VO2 max centrally. And then once the central uh, VO2 max is increased, then this leads to a further subsequent increase of peripheral adaptation that can, again, support uh, uh, central adaptations. So it sounds like a little bit of maybe, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth now, but uh, a little <laughs> bit more of the, maybe the, the traditional periodization where you do uh, a large amount of volume. Uh, I imagine when you say endurance training, you mean fairly low intensity training mm-hmm. at, yeah. uh, at long duration, um, mm-hmm. and then followed by a, perhaps a specific VO2 max block to, uh, to then drive some of those central adaptations. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, that's really reasonable, I'd say. Okay, so then let's let's talk about uh, some of the specifics. And I know you've t- uh, you've touched on some of this stuff when you talked to Michael Erickson. And I don't want to, as I as I said in our preamble, well, when it was before we started recording, I don't want to repeat what you uh, repeat the content of that show too much. But uh, in terms of uh, low intensity, high volume, sort of, where do you how do you peg that as far as as far as intensity? Uh, as far as intensity, oh, like yeah. uh, prescription wise, mm-hmm. yes, please. Um, Something sustainable that's not going to uh, accumulate too much fatigue. I mean, that, that, that's really it. I, I tell I tell my athletes to err on the side of less power and more duration, mm-hmm. um, and that's it. And if you're if you're going too hard, it can actually lead to the. I, I think that's actually like junk miles. Is if you're like going too hard in your endurance rides and you're always kind of tired, um, that's the biggest difference that I think most people make. It's like you know, and I because I've I've coached people who like commute you know, 10 hours a week, you know, yeah. an hour, an hour each day, Monday through Friday. And when that commute went away in 2020, they got slower. <laughs> like they were, <laughs> they needed that volume. Like people think of commuting as junk miles, but like, I really think it's that, that middle intensity of like, I uh, like, for instance, like always thinking that your, uh, you know, um, your endurance pace, your all day pace is a certain percentage of FTP, but it's something that, that really does change day to day. And you need to, 
you need to RPE it out. So I would say three to four for most people, but um, so a lot of folks can actually, if they're pretty well trained, can do like a five out of 10 RPE. Oh, is that right? Okay. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where like once you're riding it and you're thinking about it and you've done it for a couple hours for a couple months and you go, oh yeah, I really, I really can feel it out. And like, I've barely done any endurance training myself for a couple of years, but whenever I'm out riding, like I can feel that pace like right away. So huh. uh, the experience really does help. So that's really interesting that you you talk about uh, you talk about it from a perspective of RPE and uh, and I totally agree with you in kind of my own coaching experience that that takes a little bit of athlete maturity that that doesn't come right away and uh, honestly you know anecdot- well anecdotally with the folks that I work with especially the people that are brand new to the sport it takes a little bit of uh, <laughs> of beating out of them the concept of every workout must be hard and that you know it's it's not work unless you're you're exhausted after the fact yeah. um, do you have any kind of uh, in your this is your you know with your coach hat on any advice for people who uh, who, who struggle with that concept, um, how to think about their training, <laughs> how to um, think about their training, their, their easy, their easy non-junk, uh, aerobic miles. Um, well, I think, um, yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've recently started coaching quite a few people who, um, who have had this exact issue actually. And I, I, it's one of the, it's one of those things where like, um, you know, I start coaching them and I give, I just, my first thing is to like give them rest and like you're going to take a week off and they're like am i paying you for this it's like yes you're paying me for this take a week off the bike don't touch it i'm now your coach stop um and then um and then we wait for like you know based on their past data um i wait for their rpe for their ftp to really come back in line where ftp doesn't feel super super hard and it's just and it's like oh this is um I heard it once described as discomfortable <laughs> um, where it's not like, Oh my God, I'm breathing super hard. It's like your legs have to be screaming and your lungs are going to be fine. Um, and once that happens and um, like, for instance, um, one of my assistant coaches recently took on a guy who's uh, yeah, 240 watt FTP. His, his time to exhaustion at FTP was about 30 minutes. And I was like, okay, this is okay. But, you know, this guy, like looking at his training, I was like, okay, this guy needs to rest like right now. So uh, it was a week or two easy. And then we started doing some testing. And um, and then after a couple weeks easy, his uh, he did 240 watts for 40 minutes. So he gained 10 minutes of TTE just by resting. Like he had a performance improvement just by not training. And so, <laughs> um, and so like my, actually my girlfriend and I have, have been making this joke a lot to each other because uh, she's a coach also. Um, about uh, what mental toughness really is, is having the balls to actually rest and take some time off. Nice. I love that. I think that, uh, yeah, it's such good advice for, especially in the, you know, the, the typical type A endurance athlete population. More uh, is better. To, more is, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that assumption that more is better. And on one side, on the one side it is, right? We just finished telling listeners that you want to do a lot of base aerobic training. That's one of the one of the drivers for adaptation for VO2 max. And yeah, now we're you telling you by the end of it, or you're not going right. to be able to do shit afterwards. <laughs> that's the that's the key takeaway. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. So you've uh, you've done a block of uh, aerobic training, um, and then I guess this there's obviously some inter individual variability of how long such a block would be. I mean, mm-hmm. it depends on kind of season goals and and races if those ever come back. We're in a, we're in a tougher <laughs> shape than you are, uh, Kali. You're in uh, you're Boston, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm in Boston here. Yeah, so um, well, in this, yeah, Ontario and Alberta. I think you guys are doing even worse, Andrew. But oh, yeah, I think the uh, just as a quick aside, I think our per capita caseload is higher than India. Um, oh, good. Which everyone's oh. looking at right now is the the worst in the world. So there's that, and then if we if we had the same population as Ontario, we'd be at about eight thousand cases a day instead of the four. 000. Oh no. So. Um, yeah, not doing great. Yeah, well, let's let's keep this trade on the tracks. That was my fault for <laughs> for bringing this this like hot button topic up. But um, anyway, so when yeah, so it's obviously based on your season and, and based on races. But uh, if you're getting somebody who's you know who's been training for a few years and not brand brand new, but certainly not considered a trained cyclist in the traditional sense, what's a reasonable block of base aerobic training before you start to ratchet it up? Um, I would I would usually say about. Uh, three weeks and then a week of rest. And then depending on the person and how well I know them and how well I know that they can take higher intensity training after something like that, uh, most people usually cannot. So I would actually do another three week block of um, just gradually increasing intensity. Like you do some tempo, you do some sweet spot, you do some threshold, mm-hmm. you do a handful of stuff. Uh, if, if your next block is VO2 max, then you're going to do a handful of stuff to prepare you for that kind of stuff. So you're going to do a little bit of anaerobic capacity training maybe, um, you're going to do a little bit of, um, you know, uh, semi VO2 max training, like, you know, the way I assign VO2 max for most people, like it's high, higher cadence. And so we'll do some higher mm-hmm. cadence stuff at like FTP just to kind of get used to that. Um, so, so it's, it's a prep block and, sure. uh, and especially with, um, with, you know, the, you know, the over threshold working, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if somebody has problems with that, um, I would actually do like a full threshold block before doing VO2 max training. And also depending on, um, on their TTE, like I usually don't, uh, don't like to give people VO2 max training unless their TTE at FTP is like longer than about 50, 55 minutes. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting point. So, um, TT for you listeners who may be not familiar with the term is time to exhaustion. Uh, probably most of you are, but just, you know, just to throw that out there. So when, when Kali talks about it is, and FTP we've touched on a little bit, but we haven't spent too much time talking about it. It's kind of squishy and people define it in a million different ways. Um, but when, when he talks about, you know, TTE at FTP, there's a, a huge range there, isn't there? Like you mentioned a guy you had who was 30 and what's, what's, what do you find? And I'm, we're not going to spend too much time here folks but uh what do you find is the typical is uh is an upper limit of tt at ftp uh the i've had two or yeah i've had three athletes who've tested it uh at 78 to 83 minutes wow and uh just 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 as a a gut check like uh oh my god is this real kind of thing i give them a uh a time trial a little bit of rest make sure they're fresh not (laughs) you know not not doing too much Mm -hmm. um I'll, I'll give them a time trial at a hundred and five percent of FTP, and uh, for instance, like one guy tested at three thirty for eighty two minutes, and he said he probably could have gone another five to ten. Um, and then I was like, "All right, well, let's just make sure that this is real." And so I gave him a, t- a time trial at three hundred fifty watts, and he did that for about seventeen to nineteen minutes. So, um, so gut check said, "Yeah, that was really his FTP." Wow. So it's uh, he he wasn't sandbagging the num- the the intent the power there. No, he wasn't. Like he said uh, his sensation, well, his RPE report afterwards was if I went just a little bit higher, like five or ten watts, my I knew my legs were going to blow up really quick. Huh. So I kept it just below that, and that's that's really like that's how you know you're at FTP. Yeah, which is like not the way that 
I would say 90% of people define FTP. That's a, so that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a probably a worthwhile follow-up episode, but let's, uh, mm-hmm. let's put it aside for now. Cause, uh, yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting can of worms. So what you what you said earlier, I want to touch on. So then you've done this base block. Um, and then if you, if you don't have a minimum, uh, you know, you said, what'd you say? 55 minutes. Okay. Uh, t- yeah. So a TT at FTP, then, uh, then what do you do before you proceed to the, the top end stuff? I would do a um, an extensive uh, threshold block. So okay. where you're doing um, FTP work, um, sweet spot work, and uh, and tempo work, where you're adding time and zone uh, just about every workout. Um, so if you start with uh, so if you start with a 35 to 40 minute TTE, um, I'm going to start you with uh, three to five by 10 minutes uh, at FTP with three to five minute rests. That's mm-hmm. pretty standard like first workout. And then based on how that goes, if you only do three, then I'm going to be like, okay, you're probably tired. But if you do four or five, it's like, all right, cool. Now we can progress. And so then we'll we'll either add some time to each interval or we'll go to like three by 15 or we'll go to two by 20. And we'll add like like continuous interval length and total interval length um, together. And there's really not like a set pattern. It's really mm-hmm. just kind of what works um, with a couple over-unders and type, types of things like that. Um, so it's not all totally steady work. Uh, and, um, yeah, then I'll retest somebody and usually it takes about, uh, an average, I think improvement in TTE is like five to eight minutes for a three week block. Sometimes like sometimes a little less, like three to four minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fastest, uh, people I've seen improve will add about, yeah, 10 minutes for a three week block. So somebody's, I've, I've, you know, I've seen TTEs in two, three-week blocks go from 30 minutes to, like, 50, 55 minutes. Hmm. And usually then it's time for a rest or to, like, rest and, like, prep for races or, like, get ready for the next phase. So, yeah, that's depends. Wild. I wonder, too, and this is just my own – I'm. this is based on no research I've seen. This is just my own gut feeling. But you, you talked a little bit about um, – I, this isn't the word you use, but like familiarization with the effort when you're talking mm-hmm. about prepping for view, for work above above threshold. Um, and I suspect that that you know, especially with TTE, because TTE is so so subjective dependent. It's like it depends on your perception of the effort. That when you first start doing the efforts, uh, you know, they feel super hard and and tough, and it's it's hard to you know it's it's hard to maintain. And there's I'm I'm sure there's a you know physiological fitness improvement. But I'm willing to bet that there is some kind of, you know, psychological adaptation as well, Like you can tolerate the discomfort better. And that's that's one of the things I really like when you said about uh, prepping, you know, the you talked about cadence, but like prepping the various elements of your above VO2, above threshold work Mm -hmm. before you ask people to do it. I I bet there's a big psychological component to uh, to it as well. Likely. Uh, I don't know much about psychology. Um, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so yeah, so potentially, guess. but also, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I work with people one-on-one, like as a coach, like I don't, I don't do any like, you know, limited contact training plans or anything like that. It's like one rate, one service. And, uh, and that's, and really I like me interacting with somebody in a, in a, like a long iterative process is really what gets people to, you know, to good, good training and good coaching. So, um, you know, if there's some psychology in there, uh, there might be, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've touched on this a little bit in the past in terms of the psychology for completing these intervals and being able to, uh, find the motivation to continue. And when we talked about it, we we're talking about something like online racing or just racing itself versus if you're sitting there knowing that, okay, a, a trainer road 
workout would be a good example where it's just just hold this wattage there's no real reward for completing it aside from just completing it um but having that uh, that external motivation like winning a race or beating a friend or something like that that you can brag about i think that's a huge part in the psychology and training yourself to deal with that pain for longer periods of time uh, that can be something that uh, that really i think comes into play for a lot of athletes yeah, sure. But that's also one of those things where it could easily be that death spiral of overworking. That's true as well. Yes. Mm, very true. Yep. Very true. So, uh, okay. Let's say that we're up to, you know, 55 minutes plus TT at FTP. Uh, what does the next phase of training look like? Uh, the next phase is, uh, you know, prep for over threshold type stuff if, uh, if that needs to happen. Um, and then, um, you know, my typical like middle of the road, we're going to try this and see what adjustments we need to make mm -hmm. is going to be um, uh, three days a week, uh, usually three days in a row um, for some older athletes or newer athletes. We won't do this, um, but typically three days in a row of uh, VO2 max intervals at a done maximally at a fairly high cadence. Some people, most people, it's about 110 RPM. Some people more like uh, 100 to 105. Some people can do like if you're a track racer, I want to see it at 120 or, or higher. <laughs> um but if but it's one of those things where the higher cadence actually increases the muscle pump and so therefore venous return to the heart and in in uh, in my research and estimation and practice uh, this is something where um, where this just small tweak of the cadence the power up was going to be lower but that's okay because uh, most likely you're going to be gasping like a fish. Hmm. And that is going to be a great thing for VO2 max training. Because, um, you know, a lot of people are thinking about power equals physiologic adaptation. And really, it's the other way around. It's like you need to think about what intervals are going to make physiologic adaptation. And then, then it's sort of like using heart rate a lot of the time. It's like I don't assign things by heart rate, but I look at it mm -hmm. where I, I can tell somebody's tired or if somebody's not working hard enough or somebody's working too hard, something like that. And Or, or someone had a COVID teams. vaccine. I was like, holy Or somebody smokes. had a COVID vaccine. Uh, or like somebody 50 had COVID. beats per minute at like, at, at, <laughs> you know, sub lower threshold intensity. It's like, whoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a, it, it becomes a contextual thing. And actually, uh, Tim Cusick had a great webinar on this. I think it was titled Demystifying Training Zones. Um, where he said the original purpose uh, that Andy Coggan had with uh, power zones was descriptive and not prescriptive. It's like you go out and do these intervals, then you come back and you look at the power and you can kind of figure out what you were doing based on the power, as opposed to 120% of FTP equals this adaptation, which as somebody who could do a lot of intervals at 120% FTP, because um, I have got a big Pmax and I've got a big FRC it, when mm -hmm. I was doing endurance training, my like five minute power was like 140 to 150 percent of FTP at some point. That's ridiculous. Holy smoke! Okay. It was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I, I had like a 270 watt FTP. I, I'm not probably percentage is wrong here, but like my five minute power was like well over 400 watts. Wow. Okay, so this this brings up a couple of really uh, a couple of things I want to dig into. So first, um, you talked about the muscle pump and and how that affects uh, cardiac adaptations. Mm -hmm. So we started talking about the Fick equation when we were talking about uh, you know when we started the episode and, and the Fick equation, folks. Just to remind you, is is kind of the the equation that governs your VO two. Um, so uh, there's been 
you know, debate. I don't know how. Yeah. Let's say there's been debate about where, where the adaptations come from, where they're peripheral, which is, of course, the demand side, the, the muscular and maybe the capillary side uh, versus the central, which is um, cardiac and pulmonary. And uh, the wisdom that I've uh, received over my years of coaching is that with, especially with fairly well-trained athletes and with untrained athletes, you can do whatever you want and then it'll work. Um, but with fairly well-trained athletes, you want to focus on, uh, on the peripheral side. So more of the, of the demand side. Um, and when I was listening to uh, Kali d- deliver his anthology on VO2 max <laughs> uh, in the empirical cycling <laughs> podcast, um, I've kind of, you know, started second guessing some of this stuff, which I think is from a knowledge perspective, always a good thing to second guess. Um, but uh, I want to ask him about what the what those um, <clears throat> central adaptations look like and how high cadence drives that and, and also what his evidence for this is. So it's a, kind of a, a three-parter. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, part of, uh, part of the evidence is that um, if you, uh, oh, there's a lot of studies out there looking at central versus peripheral adaptation in terms of how much VO2 max does it get you. Mm-hmm. And the answer is the peripheral adaptation does not get you that much compared to central adaptation, which gets you a fucked up. Uh, I believe that is the scientific metric. That is the fuck, the fuck ton. Uh, <laughs> Go on PubMed and, and look for fuck ton, and you'll find all these studies. Yep. Yeah, it, and in Canada, it's T O N N E, so <laughs> it's, it's it's actually slightly more. <laughs> um, well done. So yeah, so so peripherally, um, what uh, what makes a big difference uh, seems to be. I don't have I don't have well. There's there's some evidence for it, but it's 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 like one of those things where you've got to like put the pieces together yourself. And unfortunately, that because there's not not like a great single study that ties it all together. And that's what that's really what I tried to do in the podcast is kind of tie it all together. Because hmm. um, a lot of people, I think, have a very uh, high level view of VO2 max, like a, a phenomenological view, which my um, my uh, philosophy friend tells me I'm using that incorrectly. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to that person. Um, but it's like a, it's like a thing that you measure with um, with a cart and you measure people breathing, and then you look at uh, what percentage of your VO2 max are you working at, and that's all you need to know. To me, I want to know why that. Mm-hmm. Not not just like what are we doing like on a high level. Like it's like it's sort of like um, it's like saying somebody's doing 250 watts. 250 watts relative to what? Uh, why why can they do 250 watts for this long and not? longer why can't i not do it as long this day like there, there's there's always an, another level down that i want to drill into and that's um that's part of why i think some vo2 max prescriptions just just plain annoy me to be honest um because it's like <laughs> is it better to spend more time at 100 vo2 max or less time at 90 percent? it's like well there's more going on to like than that and so um so the way i usually operate is i as i look at it in terms of um, how much are we going to get peripherally and how much are we going to get centrally? So if somebody's fairly new and they haven't had a lot of volume and yada, 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 um, it, the, the more potential I think somebody has, the more I'm actually going to um, change their annual training around actually doing VO2 max work and the adaptations that support VO2 max work while also like, you know, if you've got to have a good result here at this race, like that's also a priority, but, you know, an, an, a co-equal priority in terms of long-term development is actually VO to max and central adaptation work. Um, hmm. For instance, um, some of the best results I've had with athletes who have a lot of potential um, is taking them from 310 to 360 watts of FTP in about a year uh, or less. 
Um, and a lot of it comes on the back of tons of volume, tons of, uh, tons of extensive work like FTP and SweetSpot, and also VO2max work. And it's not like you can do one thing or the other thing or two things out of the three, or you've really got to do all of it in terms of like long-term physiologic adaptation. And that was actually one of the good things about 2020 is looking at uh, just being able to like focus on those drivers of performance. And so, you know, so I've been able to get a lot of people, a lot of adaptation and a lot of Watts that way, as opposed to if I had just been giving them volume and looking at it in terms of like, mitochondrial density equals uh, oxygen consumption equals VO2 max, like to me, that is actually backwards. To me, VO2 max comes first. Um, well, well, really, uh, if, if you want to look at an extremely simplified view, and I'm going to leave out a thousand things, so there's going to be a lot of things to criticize me about this opinion for, but um, to me, it's like plasma volume and, and blood capacitance comes first with volume, mm -hmm. and you are only going to get so much mitochondrial density based on your VO2 max. Then you raise your VO2 max on those adaptations, and then the mitochondrial density comes back. And we can actually see this with, this is one of the reasons I want somebody to have a long TTE first. Hmm. So if we have somebody at a 60 minute TTE, let's say, here's here's an actual example. Uh, 30 minutes, uh, oh, sorry, uh, 60 to 70 minute TTE at 330 watts. Um, rest, big volume block, VO2 max, TTE goes down to 30 minutes, 35 minutes, but the FTP goes up to 360 watts. Wow. And then more extensive work for FTP, and you bring it out and out and out, and then you've got a 50, 60 minute uh, TTE again. And, you know, to me, um, if you're looking at what's driving the TTE, then it's going to be uh, a lot of it's going to be mitochondrial density and uh, fat oxidation and, um, having larger motor units working and having, you know, um, glycogen capacity in those motor units, training them up. So huh. there, there's a lot of aspects to it, to me. That's okay. So it's not like, as you've said, probably three or four times now, there is no, there's no single, you know, single intervention here. It's, uh, it's yeah. sort of the commingling or the, the, you know, the interaction between at least three intervention styles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just want to, you know, I want to put a fine point on your cadence prescription. You've mentioned mm -hmm. this also a couple of times that you do um, VO2 max work. So this is work above threshold at a high cadence. And so what what about that helps with the, uh, the central adaptation specifically? It, it increases the muscle pump effect, which increases the uh, venous return and therefore the, um, the diastolic filling pressure in the heart. And if you're looking at what increases heart stroke... Um, you know, there's um, there's actually a really good uh, study um, I reference in one of the podcasts. I've, I you know, I, <laughs> I forget exactly which one it is, um, but um, but basically what they did was they um, they had people detrained and then they reinfused plasma volume back into them and that actually brought stroke volume back up. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there and uh, at a certain point uh, in one of the studies, I think it was Coyle and Coggin were two of the authors of four, I believe. Um, what they did was they had, uh, they had a plasma volume infusion, which increased VO2 max or, st and stroke volume. Um, uh, but at a certain point, the heart could actually not, um, do any more of that. Okay. Uh, and so they, they would infuse a little bit more like another half liter and they found like no improvements because the heart stroke volume had maxed out. Like that was all that person had. And so, you know, if you're looking at what causes like just muscle itself, 
to uh, to lengthen. Uh, if you're looking at fascicle length in your legs, one of the things that you're going to see is that like um, you know lengthening contractions really helps. And so, um, mm-hmm. and so if you're looking at the heart in terms of this, um, you want to be able to tell the heart like we need to have you fill more. Okay. Um, and like, why wouldn't the heart be able to do this in, in the long term? Because if you look at, you know, super elite athletes, their hearts are gigantic. They're like cantaloupe sized <laughs> as opposed to some, somebody like mine, which is like tennis ball sized. So <laughs> um, and so like they have the uh, the ability to make those adaptations. And, you know, a lot of the time in athletes like that, like um, the difference between, you know, really going for these exact adaptations versus not, um, you know, a lot of these a lot of these folks that are going to be that elite anyway. Um, it doesn't matter that much what they do, but what I find the biggest difference is, is the adaptation timeline. Hmm. So if you really go for these central adaptations um, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at trying to develop somebody physiologically as quickly as possible, um, you know, doing stuff like high cadence or other things to uh, potentially increase diastolic filling uh, volume and pressure, um, those are going to increase the rate at which somebody uh, gets better. And, you know, I would say it's maybe well, like 10 or 20% faster or something like that. So it's, it's, so it's not going to be huge, but it's going to be enough that, you know, maybe it'll save them a year in their like total development timeline. And would you, would you apply this principle to kind of, you know, the, the middle of the pack age group, the recreational athlete, do they, do they apply or is it just for elites? I do. And to good effect a lot of the time, but there's usually a point of diminishing returns because if somebody cannot increase their volume and you know keep those adaptations going, then at some uh, point if somebody's only up to like nine to twelve hours, maybe like fifteen hours a week, uh, well, I, I think somewhere somewhere between twelve and fifteen hours a week is the difference between um, for I'd say the average person, not not everybody obviously, but for the average person, that's the difference between being able to continue progressing, you know, maybe ten watts of FTP a year versus you know stagnating. Mm-hmm. Or just you know hitting your plateau because you, if you don't have more volume, if you're at six to twelve hours a week, most of the time I find people, no matter how many VO two max intervals you do, they're not going to get any faster. Um, and you need to start looking at other aspects of training to make them better endurance athletes. And typically that is doing more and more and more um, extensive like FTP and sweet spot intervals. Hmm. So you get, so you're giving them better endurance. Right, because you gotta, you still have to, yeah. You you've got a, a cap on the number of hours they can train, so you gotta. Yeah, and if you've got a cap on your VO two max, you've got a cap on your FTP, and that's that's actually one of those things where, in the long term, if you do that kind of like extensive training, uh, that can actually increase your peripheral VO two max adaptations a little bit, but it's not going to be that the big like twenty to thirty watt central per, uh, central adaptation jumps that you can make with you know central adaptation training. Cool. Very cool. But not everybody has jumps that big, by the way, just as a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. So the other thing I want to talk to you about, Kali, is uh, a large number of the listeners to this podcast are triathletes. And, uh, you know, there's a fairly reasonable distribution, I imagine, between short course and long course. But regardless, these are typically folks who will uh, really work on efficiency, right? And who will really try to get, uh, if they're, you know, at least the folks that I, that I work with, um, they're, they're really trying to get that, get that threshold as close to, um, to VO2 max as possible, mm-hmm. as we talked about. And, uh, 
um, you know, chicken and egg, maybe, maybe you can weigh in on this, but, uh, a lot of the them, egg by billions of years, by billions of years, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'll, millions, whatever. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Before chickens. That's actually, oh, there we go. That's, uh, <laughs> we have our cold. Sorry. Open yeah. It's, it's, no, it's, it's one of those perfect. typical like biologist jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, Folks who don't have a lot of, uh, you know, anaerobic capacity or uh, functional reserve capacity, whatever you want to call it, uh, because they don't train very much up there because they're, you know, it's not, it, they, there is no race specificity uh, for it for, especially for long course triathletes, uh, unless you're doing something crazy hilly. Um, for those folks doing some of the sustained longish, you know, kind of like three, four, five, six minutes above threshold is hard, right? Because they just don't have the capacity to go there. Just like you said, with you were the opposite end where you could do a ton of volume at 120%, right? Some of these folks that I work with- And I would be breathing through my nose the whole time because I had so much anaerobic capacity. It made no difference. I was like, I could do this all day. Just hold hold your breath. Who needs oxygen? Exactly. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the the opposite end of the coin. How do you you approach training for those people who still want, you know, they don't, they still want their efficiency and they may not want to, you know, increase their, their glycolytic flux, which I know you said is a whole can of worms, which we may yeah, not want to get into. That's a very large can of worms, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, who may, who still want to be, uh, you know, efficient from a, from an oxygen use and also from a, you know, a carbohydrate use. How do you approach uh, VO2 max training? How do you think about it for, for that cohort? Um, I don't think about it that much differently, actually. One of the things I would actually recommend most strongly is to not do intermittent interval type uh, VO2 max work. Hot um, take, everyone. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, I actually just saw this in uh, in one of my athletes recently. He did uh, he did four by five minutes of thirty seconds all out seated thirty seconds rest, and this is an anaerobic capacity workout. The way I'm giving it to him for race prep because mm-hmm. uh, he's he's racing now because you know God bless America or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. Um, and so he mentioned that like, I couldn't get my breathing up that high and my heart rate wasn't that high with these, but I was absolutely exhausted by the end of this. And I said, uh, you know, I was like, this is one of the reasons that I don't assign these as VO2 max training for a lot of people, especially if they don't have gigantic anaerobic capacity in P max. Like I can drive myself to hundred percent VO2 max with that kind of stuff. I hate it. It sucks. It hurts. <laughs> um, so, but you know, but I also do it as you know as a sprinter i you know it doesn't matter for me it's like i do one or two sets of those and i'm like oh that's like two weeks worth of vo2 max workouts for me that's <laughs> awesome um but with most people without a big anaerobic capacity you actually cannot drive the oxygen debt and deficit in order to have a very high uh, o2 uptake at that point and if you if you're asking me what's the biggest bang for your buck in uh in vo2 max training it's going max because um you know at, at depending on how well-trained you are, let's pretend you're everybody's pretty well-trained and that their stroke volume peaks out at their max heart rate, which is not always the case, in which case operating just above that stroke volume plateau is going to, you know, get you, uh, get you those central adaptations that you want. But if you're somebody who peaks out at, at, uh, at max heart rate, um, just going max is really the best way to do it. Because if you're not going quite max, uh, unless your heart has uh, is very easily adaptable to this kind of thing, and we can never really say for sure if it is or not. Um, well, if you have a history of this thing, sure, yeah, that's great. But if not, I I always go like max is max. Uh, Andy Cog has been saying this for a long time for you know V2 max training. Just just go 100 percent, and 
that's that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's why I go for those steady intervals as opposed to uh, anything like more intermittent. And you don't, if I'm getting your prescription correctly from your podcast and your chat with Michael, you don't prescribe them based on power. It's all RPE and cadence. Uh, never, never. Actually, in in, uh, in Tim's uh, last webinar on demystifying training zones, he actually lays out an interesting iterative uh, an interesting iterative process on um, on assigning uh, steady state beat to max intervals by power, where he's you know he he'll assign the first one at a certain power and then he'll tell the athlete like, you know, go a little harder in each one. And then, you know, at, at some point you'll probably be going max, yada, yada, yada. Okay. And then as, as the athlete uh, goes through these, you know, he'll like, he says, he'll, he'll look at like the average of all the intervals and then assign that as the first interval target again. And then, so then you'll see the power increase that way. Um, and that's one way to do it. And I've done it like that with some athletes, but you know, Tim also said he's got a, a certain max VO2 max prescription as well. Uh, and in which case max is max, just go all out. Don't start with maybe a total sprint, but yeah. you know, give it the beans and, uh, just then close your eyes and think of England. <laughs> right. And so you're trying to, uh, are you still applying the, the, you know, you know, your extensive rule to this where you're trying to stretch out the duration of each interval and the total no, duration? That is, that is actually the opposite of what I typically do because as fatigue builds through, uh, if, if you're doing a block of just VO2 max training, and we can actually talk about exceptions to this in a second, um, where, you know, you'll do two or three weeks in a row of just VO2 max and easy riding. Um, cause you know, my, my pros, by the way, um, you know, they'll do, s- and, uh, three, four, six workouts, VO2 max workouts in a week, uh, three days. So three double days and they'll, they'll do that three weeks in a row of VO2. Yeah. And typically after that, well, you know, I'm not one of your pros. Shit. <laughs> well, well, and and that's like a twenty to twenty-four hour week sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Fair point. With with all the extra volume and you know all the other protocols that we're doing uh, to help that help that along, and typically we'll see somebody's FTP go from like I don't know three sixty three seventy to like four hundred, and that's how you know that VO2 max block really worked. Um, and you know for pros, it's like you know, it's going to work, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and that's not really a worry. It's like more like managing the fatigue. And so for average folks, managing the fatigue, um, is really the big part of, uh, VO2 max work where, uh, you know, for average folks, you know, I'll do the first week, I'll do give them two or three hard workouts. And then the second week, depending on how the first week went, we'll either reduce the interval time or reduce the interval numbers. Um, or we'll add rest days in between the interval sessions. So instead of three days in a row, it'll be like, you know, uh, we'll get, we'll do two days in a row and a rest day and a third day, or we'll just do two days or like a hard day, two rest days and another hard day. And like, there's a lot of ways to manage it. Um, and it depends on how somebody's doing, how they're recovering, their off bike stress and all that kind of stuff. Huh. So in, uh, it kind of thinking about your, your principle of managing fatigue, why do you do three days in a row? I imagine that would be extremely fatigue inducing. Yeah, but as you are more fatigued and you're not quite 100% recovered, um, it seems to actually work better uh, because you don't have the anaerobic capacity to quite dig yourself as deep in a hole. Um, as opposed to somebody like me as a, as a sprinter, like I have a two, like I used to have a 273 watt FTP, but now it's like 200, and I have a 2100 watt sprint, and I have a 45 kilojoule anaerobic capacity. And so hmm. for me, how much you know. What? 45 45 yeah 45. <laughs> i know that's a big battery it's, pro- it's probably more but i haven't tested any durations longer than about a minute so okay. <laughs> um 
you know, so for me, like if I am, if I'm doing these three days in a row, um, I cannot create as much power as I could on the first day. And that's a good thing because I cannot dig the hole much deeper. Um, and where I usually tell people to stop uh, with the intervals or to like give them a rest, like, and just stop the block is if they cannot really pedal hard enough to make themselves breathe at a hundred percent. Um, and that, and that is regardless of your anaerobic capacity and whatnot. And it's, it's really one of those like individual management kind of things. And, hmm. you know, in terms of like individual management kind of stuff, one of the other things that I notice is that, uh, older athletes typically, um, you know, don't do that well on a single VO2 max block. And this is one of the things where I actually incorporate, you know, VO2 max workouts throughout the year, as opposed to just doing like, you know, nine workouts in a three week block, I'll give them nine workouts over the course of a couple months. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Depending on the recovery and whatnot. And this is why, why I wanted to have you on the show because this, this, this upends basically so much of what I've heard from, you know, my own reading and research and people we've had on the show who I have a ton of respect for, who a lot of whom were proponents of the, you know, the, the hit style short and in, short interval, uh, you know, uh, 30, 30s or, or 40, 20s or 20, 20s, whatever the protocol was. And mm-hmm. I've used them and I've uh, prescribed them. And so now I'm kind of, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to think twice. But one thing that you said that, that resonated with me when you were talking about, um, you know, the athlete that you coach that you, you assign that max workout to anaerobic for anaerobic capacity, um, mm-hmm. improvements, um, told you that he couldn't breathe hard enough and get his heart rate hard enough. That's, I feel that too. When I do even like a fairly long 30, 30 block, um, at my, you know, estimated power VO2 max or even slightly above mm-hmm. my legs are crushed, but I, my heart rate's nowhere near max. And my breathing, my breathing is not a limiter. It's always like, it's, it's muscular a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one of those things where, um, like by breathing for me is the number one thing of, um, is, this VO2 max protocol working. Um, and if you can actually, and if you can do intermittent intervals and like get there, then that's great. That's fine. Then do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those things where this is my prescription and, and I'm, you know, have I assigned intermittent intervals to good effect for people? Not usually. And that's why I typically avoid them because if somebody's paying me what they pay me to coach them, um, you know, I'm going to go right for what I know works and I don't want to waste anybody's time, theirs or mine. And I don't want to waste their money either. And so I go for I go right for what works, and then we adjust from there, individually, as opposed to trying everything in the book and then going, well, that was six months, and thanks for all the money, and sorry you didn't get any faster. Um, I want to have I want to have a, a really good um, uh, ability to tell somebody like, look, this is everything that could possibly be done, and you know we're just at your limit of this, that, or the other thing right now, and that's why. I wish you were faster, uh, but it may not happen. You need to adjust your eating. You need to adjust your sleeping. Uh, I mean, that's happened before too. And, I mean, uh, we, all, we all have a theoretical ceiling somewhere or even a, a ceiling un, under our circumstances. That makes perfect sense. For most of us, like most of the people I work with, it's time. Uh, I just started working with a guy who is um, who has – a lot of time to train. He's just, you know, he's, he's like, give me 20 hours, give me 25 hours. Like, all right, mm-hmm. now we can, you know, we can do some work. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, most, most folks are, you know, I've got folks who are like triathletes at eight hours, right? And like, that's all they can do. Family work. Mm-hmm. This is the, you know, fill my, fill my time. 
Um, yep. But I have one more question about about the, your your uh, preferred method of VO2 max training. What do you look at uh, to tell you that they're hitting that fatigue threshold and that they might be doing more harm than good? Even if you have like this, you know, three by three, you know, three week by three workout uh, plan in their in their schedule. When do you when do you pull the plug on that? Um, if they don't pull the plug first, which happens sometimes, and I support that because um, most of my athletes by now know you know, a lot of the time, like less is more. Um, but usually I look at both power and heart rate. So okay. heart rate, I, I'm not actually for the high cadence. What happens is the, since the heart is actually ha- has a higher diastolic filling volume. Um, typically it has to beat less frequently to get out the same cardiac output in O2 or no, like stroke in, volume yeah. stuff, right? Exactly. So, so like if somebody's typical max heart rate is like 170, you know, for these intervals, we'll see somewhere between like 160 to 165 maybe. Um, or maybe even a little lower. Okay. Um, so, so with that, if like I see somebody's heart rate in each interval getting up to like 164, 165, 64, 165, 164, 165, then it gets to like 158. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and usually the power output has like tanked at that point too. Yeah. And that's when I tell somebody rest, take it, take it easy tomorrow, unless you feel really good. But also, you probably need to eat more. Um, or you need to like get better sleep or something like the recovery is probably off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's one of the things where I, I find a lot of folks, um, you know, could do better. Um, and like one of my, one of my new pros this year, um, you know, he did, uh, he did the big block of, um, of, uh, you know, three double days for three weeks and around the end of the first week or beginning of the second week, um, he was, you know, starting to go, oh my God, these workouts are not going that well. And I was agreeing with him because we were seeing that same drop off in heart rate and power. Mm-hmm. And I said, you got to eat a lot more because this is still like, how much would you normally eat for like a 25 hour week? Right. And now you're doing <laughs> a lot, max a interval lot on top of that. Yeah. And so I was like, you got to eat a lot more. Uh, and he did. And so it basically turned into an eating and interval contest with himself and, <laughs> and, and he made it through and he, he was like, Oh my God, I'm, I've never been this fit this early before. And I was like, good. Now we can, now it's, now that we've got that fitness, it's so easy to maintain it as opposed to like building it through the year, you know, with like, you know, his, he's going to go to world cup races and everything. And it's like, I, you know, I don't want him to have to like play catch up on his aerobic fitness all year. Now we have, now we've got it we can maintain it and we can, you know, do other stuff. Awesome. Kali, this is a great place to leave it because I've got a million more questions, but I, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Plus I also, you know, kind of want to, we, we, we've gone down some, some rabbit holes, but mostly kept it on, uh, on topic of VO2 max as a, as a broader, uh, you know, umbrella topic for this conversation. So I want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time and uh, agreeing to come on the show. Um, where can, uh, people follow you, find out more, learn more about empirical cycling. Oh, uh, empiricalcycling.com. Um, we have, uh, the podcast up there with all the show notes up there. Um, uh, you know, you can send uh, coaching inquiries to me at cycling at gmail.com. And also on Instagram, I have, uh, uh, my, my main feed is not that great. It's not that interesting, unfortunately, but in the stories I do weekend AMAs. So, um, if anybody wants to check those out, uh, most weekends, sometimes I forget or I'll put it up on like Sunday at like 11 PM <laughs> Eastern time. So still, a weekend. <laughs> still technically the weekend. Um, so I do that. It's a Q&A session on uh, either anything at all or I'll pick a topic and uh, and that's a lot of fun to follow along with. So uh, feel free to ask questions. And uh, and also uh, we do have a triathlon coach. Fabiano is actually a fabulous triathlon coach. And cool. um, I, I don't coach triathlon myself anymore, but Fabiano is great and uh, he works for us. So um, 
Yeah. I strongly recommend the podcast to anyone who is, uh, you know, a physiology nerd or wants a little bit of a deeper or sometimes a much deeper understanding of uh, of the topics. Definitely check out the Empirical Cycling Podcast. <laughs> it's one of those ones. It's funny how I, I'll, I'll listen to it on the trainer sometimes. And I know there's an upper intensity ceiling. Uh, of my training rides where like above the ceiling, I can't listen to empirical cycling below this, below this, I can totally listen and I can absorb most of it, but above <laughs> it, like, no, it's gotta be something lighter or music, but it's uh yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit dense, but it's totally worth it folks to listen. Yeah. It may be an upside or a downside, but I, I actually get a lot of people telling me that they listen to episodes multiple times when <laughs> personally, I think they should just go read the references that I put up for the shows. <laughs> it might, might actually be a lot easier because sometimes, uh, sometimes those authors are a lot more eloquent than yeah, I am. But you know, it's, it's yeah, people like to multitask. I also listen to, oh, I have to find the guy's, um, uh, the guy's name. Um, trying to get him on the show. Actually, he, uh, he is a former high level or pro cyclist and he, his business has something to do around integrating training and working into kind of like one one thing where his he um he pushes sort of you know working productively on your day job while exercising because of you know increased blood flow to the brain and all of these positive cognitive effects of uh, of training so ever since watching this lecture i've started to do more of my trying to do more of my learning as i'm training and uh uh, because before I was like, man, I live and breathe endurance sports. I, I, you know, when I'm training, I don't really want to pay attention to this stuff. I want to l- listen to some, you know, some metal or something. But uh, <laughs> when I'm uh, <laughs> recently I, on easy rides and runs, I started listening to this stuff. And like my retention's pretty good. Like my memory is much better when I'm doing that stuff. And I find that I can learn it. So, yeah, like I said, there's a, you know, certainly a maximal intensity. But below that, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I quite enjoy the show. Interesting. Well, uh, that's good. I actually have the opposite experience where if I'm training, I cannot, I have to like just zone out because that's, that's like usually my only downtime. Um, and, and when I'm not training, my brain is going a thousand miles an hour at all times. <laughs> so like, my, my, my retention for like, if I'm listening to a podcast while I'm working out is like zero. Really? <laughs> yeah. Even at easy intensities. There's really no such thing as easy intensity for a sprinter. Um, uh, you're, you're like you're doing hard sets in the gym, or you're sprinting all out, and then in between that, you're you're just gasping. And uh, yeah, well, <laughs> then no, then no, the, yeah, then for sure, there's no yeah, there's no room for you to learn anything. Yeah, we had um, we had Costas Karen Georges, who's from the University of Brunel, um, and uh, he's he's he studies music in uh, in endurance sports and how it affects endurance performance. And he says about a cer- above a certain intensity, there's there's no comprehension happening anymore at mm-hmm. all. That it's just straight up like you 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 know you can hear sound, you know that it's happening, but you can't even like even music stops sort of working unless it's very rhythmic. Uh, below that, you can hear all sorts of intricate stuff below that intensity, but above yeah. a certain intensity, yeah, you can't. And that's there's, that's your proof positive that Cannibal Corpse is the best trainer music because at some point it just turns into white noise. <laughs> and with a beat <laughs> that's it <laughs> plus one um well man thanks again for the for the time this was i really enjoyed this conversation it was uh, it was awesome I yeah me too man too. thanks for having me it was a lot of fun yeah. listeners thank you for uh, for hanging out with us if you have any questions for us do send them our way and of course uh if you like the show give us a rating and, and or a re- review on uh apple podcasts or wherever it is that you get your shows thanks everyone never have like a, a, a 
seltzer when you're doing a podcast <laughs> I, I you, you talk about best practices and i was just like <laughs> i i know this and yet i fail every time 